Good morning and welcome to Soul Online. We are so glad that you have joined us this morning. My name's Andrew. I'm the student ministries pastor here at Soul. And today we're continuing on in our summer playlist series. In many ways, musicians, actors, and other celebrities have become the philosophers of our time, and they have a great influence over culture. In past years, going back to our time meeting in the movie theaters together, we've done God in the movies. But this summer, we're doing something different. We're shifting over to music, and each week, we'll take a look at a different song. Now, music's always been a powerful medium. It can quickly change a mood or outlook. A specific song can transport us back to a different time, a memory, good, bad, or anything in between. And the lyrics, whether we recognize it or not, shape different parts of our lives. This morning, the song we'll be taking a look at is the song Heathens by 21 Pilots. Now, 21 Pilots is an American music duo consisting of Tyler Joseph and Josh Dunn and is best known for songs like Stressed Out Ride or the song we're looking at today, Heathens. Their music's an interesting genre. Defined as alternative hip-hop, 21 Pilots is known for their unconventional nature and blending of music styles. Boring from all sorts of different genres, they combine hip-hop, electronic, punk, rock, and reggae rhythms to create a unique sound. Also interesting to note is that both Joseph and Dunn grew up in Christian households and are believed to still consider themselves Christians today. In an interview with Rolling Stone, Dunn said that he'd hide albums like Green Day's Dookie under his bed and and that his parents would go and find a Christian alternative like Reliant K and make him listen to that instead. On the other hand, Joseph's favorite band growing up was the rap rock trio DC Talk. Any DC Talk fans listening this morning? Any Jesus freaks? What would people do if they knew that I was a Jesus freak? Oh, great song. Fantastic. But with this in mind, while 21 Pilots is not a Christian band, one can see some very obvious Christian themes in some of their songs. The majority of the lyrics send positive messages primarily to those who are struggling with personal mental health problems. While it's clear that 21 Pilots' loyal fan base, who refer to themselves as the skeleton clique, is made up more of those who uh, more than likely have worldviews related to nihilism or people who are struggling in their walks with Christ— It's also very clear that their music is of a Christian worldview as they talk about their struggles and keeping their faith in the Lord in the midst of their own mental health struggles. The Beat magazine wrote this about the band. They said, 21 Pilots consists of two Christian guys, Tyler Joseph and Josh Dunn, whose goal is to reach out to those who are struggling through life by getting them to talk through the message they share throughout their lyrics. It's very clear that they want to get those who are struggling with their mental health, such as through anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts, to try and think differently by sharing their own personal testimonies of how they have endured and are enduring through similar trials, but still have hope. With all this in mind, let's jump into the song, Heathens. Heathens starts with, all my friends are heathens, take it slow. Wait for them to ask you who you know. Please don't make any sudden moves. You don't know the half of the abuse. Written five years ago as part of the soundtrack for the movie The Suicide Squad, the song Heathen has two dominant interpretations. And because the band has never come out and outright said that this is the interpretation that's actually true or correct, we're going to look at both of those interpretations today. Knowing that Tyler Joseph, who writes the song, comes from a Christian background, he could very well be writing towards followers of Jesus about his friends who many Christians would consider to be heathens. 
Joseph's friends are heathens defined very literally means they could be, there aren't Christians or they don't know Jesus. Or if we look even further, it could refer to people that self-righteous Christians would refer to as heathens based on their lifestyle. You could look to someone in the Bible like Zacchaeus as an example of this. Christians will sometimes refer to Christianity as knowing Jesus. In John 17 verse 3, Jesus says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So there is a precedent for referring to Christian faith as knowing someone or, or talking about who you know, like the second line in the song says. Thus, perhaps this song is talking about evangelism. Now, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this this morning because Pastor Jerry talked about evangelism last week, but there are a few takeaways that I think are interesting. And if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back and watch it. But Pastor Jerry looked at the song, Drinking Beer, Talking God, Amen. And the big takeaway from that week was that we need to listen. He pointed out that one of the primary ways that the gospel spread throughout the early church was through informal conversations. Yes, it spread through the preaching of Peter, Paul, and other gifted communicators. But it also spread through a network of relationships of people who were not professional clergy or apostles, but rather informal evangelists and amateur missionaries. Pastor Jerry argued that too often Christians are focused on sharing the message that we forget the most important step, and that is listening. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone where you couldn't get in a word? When we fail to listen, we often— with, to those we speak with, we're more likely than not to mi- not just miss an interesting anecdote or two, but we risk missing the person themselves. He continued that it can be deeply frustrating to feel spoken at rather than with, to be the recipient of a monologue rather than a partner in a dialogue. For most of us, to not be heard is worse than being misunderstood. It is tantamount to not being seen or valued. And we see this theme again in our song this morning. All my friends are heathens. Take it slow. Don't make any sudden moves. You don't know the half of the abuse. We don't know everyone's story, their backgrounds, their worldviews, the hardship or abuse they've been through, or the victories or joys they've experienced. Therefore, it's essential that we take time to listen and learn about someone, and it can't just be a one-sided conversation. Like it says in James 1, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Ask questions. Take it slow. Listen. Jesus himself actually models these themes well for us. How did he respond to the woman at the well in John verse 4? How about the disciples walking toward the village of Emmaus in Luke 24? Or the blind man Bartimaeus in Mark 10? In each of these stories, Jesus was quick to pause, to listen, and to ask questions. I've also seen these themes in some of the research that I've been doing recently about evangelism and Generation Z. Last month, Barna Group and Youth Alpha in Canada released a a report about a study they had done about Gen Z and evangelism in Canada. And some of the results are really interesting, so I want to share a few of them with you today. What may be the most surprising from that study is that the, the emotions that faith conversations elicit from Canadian Gen Zs. I think that when we talk about evangelism or or talking about our faith with people of other beliefs, we we think about feeling anxious or stressed. We start to feel uncomfortable or awkward. But when asked how they would feel about talking about faith with someone who doesn't share their belief, the emotions that Canadian Gen Zs said they felt were overwhelmingly positive. The top emotion they reported, and this is by a very significant margin, was calm. 
calm. Also found near the top of the list were the emotions peaceful, happy, proud, and excited. Yes, we still see emotions like awkward or anxious near the top of the list, but evangelism and faith conversations with people who don't hold the same beliefs uh, as you elicit mostly positive emotions from young Canadians. And this isn't because Gen Z just isn't having these conversations. The report shows that actually 70% or more of Christian teens have had at least one faith conversation with a non-Christian within the past year. So the question we should probably ask this morning is why? Why is that their response? Because I think there are things we can learn from the generation that I get the privilege of working with every single week. Affirming what Pastor Jerry talked about last week when asked, which of the following characteristics would you use to describe someone who is comfortable sharing their faith? The top answer from the study was listens without judgment. Also in the top answers were someone who demonstrates interest in the other person's story of life and is good at asking questions. They also say that the best outcome of a spiritual conversation would be to better, one an- better understand one another. It's not to win them over. If you remember, Pastor Jerry reminded us last week that the fastest way to kill a conversation is to try and win it. You know, as I was preparing for this life lesson, I was chatting with Pastor Jordan about some of my thoughts, and he had just finished having a conversation with Pastor Paul from Living Word Temple, who was telling him about an experience he'd had earlier that week. He said that he'd been walking around uh, the neighborhood by Living Word, like he often does, asking people if they'd like prayer for anything. And long story short, he ends up chatting with this older lady and and they end up sitting on a park bench and for the better part of an hour, Pastor Paul mostly just sat and listened. And at the end of the conversation, the lady goes, I know who you are. I know what you're trying to do. I know what, what your church is all about. I've had lots of people try and tell me about Christianity before, but none of them have ever taken the time to really listen to me, to hear my story. That should be an ouch moment for us. Two final things that I want to draw your attention to in that study. First, for Gen Z's actions speak louder than words. Why would I listen to someone who teaches an ethic of love but doesn't live that out themselves? Why would I want to follow a God who's supposedly going to change my life if if you follow him but you look exactly the same as everyone around you who doesn't follow? And the second is this, for Gen Z's relationship is the key ingredient to evangelism. Four out of five agreed that having a conversation about faith is most effective when you already have an established and significant relationship with that person. And then the faith conversation they had with that person wasn't a one-time event. It was something that they followed up on and had further conversations about. So before we move into the second interpretation of the song, I want us to consider a few questions. Do you have relationships with people who don't share your beliefs or views about faith? Are you creating space for faith conversations with those people? Are those conversations one-sided or are you spending a significant amount of time listening? Are you trying to understand the person better or just waiting to get your point across? Is your lifestyle affected by your relationship with Jesus and does it line up with the faith that you're professing? If the answer to any, all, or some of those questions is no, I'd encourage you to spend a little bit of time sitting, thinking, and reflecting on why that is. Now to the second interpretation of our song this morning. 
The other dominant interpretation is that Joseph is talking about more, uh, more about judging people in general than anything else. It's easy after a little bit of conversation with someone to make assumptions, but we really don't know what's going on inside that person's mind or why they do what they do. Joseph is calling for empathy, for patience, and a willingness to give the benefit of the doubt. One of the lines in the song goes, you'll never know the freak show sitting next to you. You'll have some weird people sitting next to you. You'll think, how did I get here sitting next to you? If we look back at the term heathen, from a religious standpoint, it refers to, to an outsider, someone outside the faith. But if we wanted to look at the term a little more generally, it can also be applied to anyone who isn't a part of a specific member or group. So for instance, if you were a diehard fan of the 21 Pilots, a member of the skeleton clique, and someone comes around claiming to be a fan of the band, but perhaps isn't as committed, that individual could be labeled as a heathen. On the other hand, it has been speculated that Joseph is speaking to the newcomers themselves, and he's telling them not to be intimidated by the stylings of the established members of the clique. In other words, the skeleton clique and the way they live may appear to some as heathens. Either way, the song is pointing out something big in our culture. We often don't do well with people who are different from us. We don't do well with people who are different from us. The song goes, we don't deal with outsiders very well. They say newcomers have a certain smell. We live in an interesting time where there are so many polarizing views and opinions. And if we disagree with someone, we can basically just remove them from our life and go elsewhere. No longer is community based on physical proximity. With the rise of technology and individualism, our community is found in the people that we choose. And that's usually just the people who are like us. It could be people who like the same things that we do, the same sports teams, musicians, or TV shows. Or it could be based on bigger things like politics or beliefs on social issues. Author Andrew Zersky calls this networked individualism. He writes that community is no longer a given, but it must be created, convened, and maintained by each individual in the form of a network. And as with any social system, networked individualism demands people behave in certain ways in order to be socially accepted or successful. In a world of networked individualism, we're forced to establish a unique set of relationships where we receive our care and our support. And this takes work. If we don't expand the relational work that's necessary to keep those network connections healthy, we ultimately lose them and our network of social support. This is a fearful prospect in a time where loneliness may be at an all-time high. Additionally, Zershki points out that the system of networked individualism, in that system, our value is based on performance and desirability. If someone underperforms or is no longer desirable, they are removed from the network. So what's our response as a church to a social system like this? As I was reading last week, I came across a story about an Orthodox priest named Father Stephen, who works with youth in Philadelphia. After his church duties of leading the liturgy and communion are over, Father Stephen takes off his robe, puts on his blue jeans and an old baseball cap, and heads out on the streets of downtown Philadelphia, working primarily with individuals caught up in sex trafficking and teen runaways. When asked if he ever feels like there's a disconnect between the Father Stephen in, in the robes and the Father Stephen in blue jeans helping runaways, Father Stephen was surprised by the question. He responded, Disconnect? No, I feel precisely the opposite because in the Orthodox Church, we don't just serve communion, we are communion. 
What we do in the liturgy informs how we live towards one another and the world. What we do in the streets is a direct result of being in communion together. It's an interesting thought. For most Christians, it's common to talk about celebrating communion or receiving communion, taking or partaking in communion, but it's not normal for us to talk about being communion. But I think that Father Stephen's right. Communion isn't just some ritual where we drink from little cups and eat little wafers. It's remembering what Jesus did for, uh, for us on the cross and how that should change our lives. It's recognizing that the blood of Christ unifies us with all sorts of different people in the midst of radical, radical diversity. It's something that should inform the way we live with and treat others, and it provides a countercultural social operating system for the church. In the early church, communion was actually just part of a much larger way of socially living with one another. As we read in Acts 2 verse 42, it says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. I think that in many ways, those in the church, myself included, have become so comfortable with taking communion that we forget that it's anything more than a meal of remembrance. And we're not the first ones to do this either. In 1 Corinthians chapters 10 to 12, the Apostle Paul addresses some of the same ideas to the Corinthian church where they'd forgotten the true impact of the communion table. In 11 verse 18, Paul writes, I hear there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. In verse 20, he says, when you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. It's probably an ouch moment for the Corinthian church. He goes on to say that they're not eating the Lord's Supper with the rest of their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're eating their own meal according to their own customs of competition and exclusion. In this specific context, the well-off believers in Corinth would have had the resources and leisure time to arrive earlier and bring larger quantities and finer foods than the rest of the congregation. As was the custom, they would fill a smaller private dining room, and then those coming later who had to work longer would be seated separately. Those who could not afford a full meal or a very good one would not have the opportunity to share with the rest in a way that the Christian community of the Christian unity demanded demanded. Paul's pointing out that Jesus' account of the Last Supper, which we can read about in the Gospels, stands in stark contrast to the behaviors of the Corinthian church. His body and blood were a sacrifice for all who believed. Communion was designed precisely to foster Christian unity, not to further create divisions uh, among different classes or social or people groups. As Paul continued to teach the Corinthians about this new social system for the church as symbolized in communion, he says this in 12, verse 12 to 13. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some of us are Gentiles, some are slaves and some are free, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit and we share the same spirit. Later in verse 27, we read, all of you together are Christ's body and each of you are a part of it. We're all a part of one body, the body of Christ, and we are unified together through his sacrifice on the cross. In a few moments, we're going to partake in communion or the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper should be a time for self-examination like it says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 28. And not just an examination of past sins, although confession and repentance of that is important, but also an examination of our attitudes and actions to those around us, especially those different from us and those in need. 
Remember back when we were discussing how acceptance and value in networked individualism is based on performance, usefulness, and desirability? Later in his book, Zershki goes on to write that Christian communion is marked by radical equality, not secured by one's usefulness or desirability, but by the interpenetrating, self-giving love of Christ in whom we all share equally. Communion is a matter of being part of the body of Christ. We are affirmed as indispensable. And this radical equality includes radical inclusion of the lost, abandoned, or social outcasts of our community. With this, Zershki writes, it is one thing to serve the downtrodden and abandoned. It is quite another to adopt them as family and move into the neighborhood. Yet this is precisely the friendship modeled by Jesus who quite literally took up residence in the neighborhood as we read in Peterson's translation of John 1 verse 14 in the message. So what now? As brought up in the song, Heathens, we live in a world full of disunity, judgment, and we don't know the pain, suffering, or abuse that others have endured. We also live in a world in which social justice and basic human rights are denied to many people, even some living right here in Canada. So as we move into communion, I actually want to read something from the Ecumenical Commission in 1982 regarding the Lord's Supper and give us a moment to reflect before we partake together. It says this, The Eucharist, or communion, celebration demands reconciliation and sharing among all those regarded as brothers and sisters in the one family of God and is a constant challenge in the search for appropriate relationships in social, economic, and political life. All kinds of injustice, racism, separation, and lack of freedom are radically challenged when we share the body and blood of Christ. As participants in Eucharist, therefore we prove inconsistent if we are not actively participating in this ongoing restoration of the world situation and the human condition. And above all, the obstinacy of unjustifiable confessional oppositions within the body of Christ. Let's take a moment to reflect before we partake together. Taken from 1 Corinthians 11, where we're just reading Paul's instructions to the Corinthian church regarding communion. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's drink the cup together.
As we close today, I think really that the two interpretations of the song Heathens that we discussed today fit well together. Going back to what Father Stephen said, what we do in the liturgy or when we take communion like we just did together, it informs how we live towards one another and the world. The Bible provides us with a countercultural social system for interacting with both those inside and outside of the church. In both, we need to remember that we're interacting with dearly loved people made in the image of God, his masterpieces, like it says in Ephesians 2 verse 10. Let's pray. God, we thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. We pray that as we remember the sacrifice you made, that we're also reminded of how that should affect our words and actions towards others. I pray that you allow us to see people the way you see them, that you help us love them well and point them towards your love. God, we pray for unity where there is not. We pray for understanding where it's lacking, and we pray for the humility that's needed in our relationships with one another. Thank you for always loving us, for never giving up on us, and for the grace you freely give even when we don't deserve it. Help us to live as salt and light so that we may bring your love and goodness to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In ancient times, the one who blessed extended their hands, and those wanting to receive the blessing did likewise. If you'd like a blessing this morning, here it is. Soul sanctuary, be communion. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Embrace others with love in the face of differences. And remember what Jesus did for us on the cross and how it should affect the way we live with others. Go in peace and live the church. We'll see you next week.